with you today. I did miss last week. I was off to see some relatives in Colorado and some business in Wyoming and had a eventful and good trip, I think, but a hurried one. It's covered a lot of miles, but it's good to be here on the Sabbath day, beautiful day. I was pondering this morning about where to go with this sermon and maybe some to come, and uh, it hit me that we need to have clearly in mind what our goals and purposes are. Uh, If you will, people who go into business have a business plan, and if you go to the bank for money or to get a loan, they want to see your business plan. What are your goals? What are your purposes? How do you intend to accomplish those goals and purposes? they got a lot of questions because if they're going to turn loose money to back you in your endeavor, uh, they want to have a pretty good idea of whether you can have the right plan and the right capacities to fulfill it or not. And that only makes good sense. Uh, we need to have a plan. So, as Christians, uh, that same principle certainly applies very much so, that we need goals, we need purposes, and we need a pretty good idea of how we're going to accomplish what it is that we're after. So, I started out with that premise and thought, and one verse came to mind that we've just been over recently in Matthew 6, and verse 33 because this pretty well sums up everything that Christ was telling his disciples there as he was training them to go out and proselyte to uh, give his truth, his doctrines, his counsel, and to help them in the conversion process. So you can sum it up pretty well here in verse 33. Seek you first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things that he'd been discussing here, shall be added to you. So, the number one goal and purpose is seeking the kingdom of God, and that means above everything. Uh, We've talked quite a bit recently, I think, about our relationship with God. Uh, Part of what set that off was what Jesus said to his disciples there before he was taken, where he says, I want to give you an upgrade to friendship. And I think we all understand, to one degree or another, uh, what friendship means as opposed to strangers, as opposed to someone who might be in a high position at school or at work or in the politics or whatever, and We have a certain knowledge of them. If they're close in business, we might have a certain uh, understanding of their voice, their personality, their mode of operation, what they do and how they do. And we assess those things. But when it comes down to friendship, instead of just associate or colleague or whatever... Then we begin to peel back feelings, 
understanding of each other, uh, how people think, how they react, whether they have commonalities with us or not that we enjoy sharing with each other. Uh, friendship then takes on a much, much deeper relationship than what we might have experienced with more casual relationships. So that's what Christ was saying. He says, I don't want you to only be servants. Now we're still his servants. We're here to serve him in every way we can. So servant is the bottom rung of what he wants from us, if you will. You move up the ladder in the relationship. You become friends, closely uh, communicating and understanding each other, having similar feelings about certain things. And in this world, uh, you meet people, you have friends, and even if they're friends, they can be casual friends, or they can be very deep friendships. There can be those that people have maybe all their lifetime. I've known people who had friends in school, and when they're 80 years old, they're still in communication with each other because the relationship was such that both sides wanted to maintain it. Uh, you've probably been through various congregations in the church, as have I, and you would develop an affinity or a friendship or a closeness to to some more than you would others, just because of the way the mind, the emotions, the education, the hobbies, whatever, uh, were somewhat concurrent and fitted together, so you'd become fairly close with them. Then as a minister, uh, I don't know whether you moved as often as I did, but every about four years I was in a different spot and had to learn a new people. And there I would find that in the new place, there were some I would tend to become closer to than others uh, and maybe develop some fairly close friendships. But it was of such a nature that I didn't have time, perhaps inclination, to try to maintain all those friendships from two or three congregations back because you're busy here and you're involved here and that's in the past. Uh, in some cases, those friendships remain so that 20, 30 years later, if you picked up the phone, you'd still be on the same page. Have you had friends like that where it didn't matter whether it was a week or six years, wherever your conversation left off, your relationship, your communication picked up right there? Like there had never even been uh, a lapse of time in there. I've had people like that that I've known in my life that uh, they're still that way. I mean, 40 years later. Not very many, but, you know, a few. And it's kind of a nice feeling to have that, hey, if I call so-and-so, I know they'll still be friends. <laughs> they'll still talk to me after all these years or whatever. So... Christ was saying there, I want an upgrade. I want to be closer to you. I want to have better communication with you. I want to have more understanding between us. And that's pretty much what he was saying there when he said, 
you know, the master doesn't tell the servant everything. They're servants. You don't discuss everything about your life with your servants. They're there as employees, perhaps. But your friends, you'll sit down on the back porch or with a drink or with coffee or with a fishing pole or whatever, and you will communicate on a higher level and give more detail about your lives and share things with them that you wouldn't share with a servant. So he says, I want to share more with you. And in fact, he says, I want to share everything with you. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes as your comforter, it will teach you everything. So God is not limiting how close we can be to him. He puts no limits, no bounds on that. We can get as close as our human nature, our minds, our emotions will allow us to get through seeking him. He does not say, here's the line, you can't go beyond this. When that veil of the temple was split in two when Christ died, it allowed through his death and the forgiveness of our sins, for us to be adjudged as holy. Because that veil separated us between us and the holiness of God. So to break that in two and split it apart means that he gave us access to him at any time, in any way, and we should be able to say anything that our hearts and minds desire to talk about or share with him. And in that, he is adjudging us holy. Because it was the entrance to the Holy of Holies that was made. It had been sacrosanct in the Old Testament. Only Aaron went in once a year on atonement, and then he had to be cleaned up from one end to the other, his body, his clothes, everything, hopefully his mind, to go before God in the Holy of Holies. Now, to converted Christians, he has given that access. The world does not have that access. Only those who have been called out and chosen and given that opportunity. Now, he was telling that to his disciples who were to become apostles. He didn't direct that to the whole world. Now, anybody in the world whom he chooses to call and to give his truth and his spirit through the Spirit of God, through Christ, we can approach Him directly. Otherwise, our prayers are going basically nowhere. He did say, I hear not sinners. So, generally, people out in the world who are just leading a life of carnal human goals and purposes and living lives that are contrary to His commandments, which nearly everybody's are, Christian or not. The non-Christians don't care about his commandments at all, and the so-called Christians say they're all done away. So 
nobody out there is living a holy, righteous life. Now, they may be living a moral life. They may be living an honest life. But it's not a godly life. Rooted in the relationship with Him. And that has to be achieved. So, we look at ourselves and we see our sins. We see our weaknesses. We see our faults, I hope. But we also see the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace of God, in that He, through His Son's sacrifice, is willing to purge those day by day so that we have a fresh start every morning, as we've said, lamentations, and we don't have to carry the sin of yesterday into today. All it does is hold us back from doing better today than yesterday because we're still worried about yesterday. One way to help resolve that issue is don't do things that make you feel bad about yesterday. Uh, But we will to one degree or another because we're still in this human frame. So when he wants this relationship upgraded, he's there. And I'm going to show you that today. He's willing to take this relationship as high as we are able to allow it and cause it to happen. We are the limit, not him. In that sense, the sky, (laughs) the universe, is the limit. And we limit ourselves. We are our own worst enemies, if you will. We are our own worst idol because we put ourselves and our desires, wants, wishes, and feelings ahead of God. So our relationship with him is limited by our humanity. And the more we keep that under control and are motivated by his spirit rather than our human (coughs) desires and wants and feelings, the better it's going to get. So when he says, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, uh, just seeking it without righteousness will not accomplish it. You have to lead a righteous life in order for him to want you in his kingdom and give you that gift. So he does tie our compliance with this. And then he will add everything we need. So he says then in the next verse, don't worry. Don't take anxious thoughts for these things of the world. And we went over that some before about how, yes, we're to be concerned about working and making a living and doing the things that we have to do in life. But we're not to be worried about it. Now, I'm going to take you back to Isaiah 7 and give one more example along these same lines. Because here, and we've been over this before, there is a conspiracy against Israel, just as there is a conspiracy against the church. There is this conspiracy against our nation. And we are now beginning to see this conspiracy take legs and arms and become very much a reality. 
as we are being suffocated by masks and now admonished to get vaccines or we won't be able to move about the country. We won't be able to shop. We won't be able to work because companies are going to require a vaccine permit for you to go to work. Uh, even Walmart now, I noticed, has started uh, dropping the, man, the mask mandate if you can prove you've had the shot. If you can't prove you had the shot, you still got to wear the mask. So we'll see where it goes and all that. But uh, we're not looking for something to come. We're watching it as it gets clearer and clearer and stronger and stronger in our nation and in the world today. So that conspiracy has been there. Uh, call it a plot. Call it a conspiracy. Call it a, an alliance. Use whatever word you want, since conspiracy is such a bad word these days. Uh, they have been working at destroying America. Because, as God said, the whole Gentile world wants to see Israel destroyed. Uh, Israel has always been a pain in the neck for the rest of the world, except when Israel is joined with them. <laughs> and we pretty much have, but they hate us anyway today. So he gives a sign about 65 years and so on. So we won't go back through all that. And then he says, after that time, the Assyrian will come in the land toward the end of chapter 7, and great destruction will occur. And that plan and that plot is pretty well complete. It's just a matter of when it is initiated. Now, what does God tell us to do during this time? I mean, it should become obvious now that this new world order, this plot to rule the world and to destroy most of mankind is a very real thing. It is being administered shot by shot and in various ways, uh, like shutting down the production of meat for food in Oregon and one other state is doing that. Uh, so you can't eat anything that's animal unless it dies of itself. I talked about that some. You're going to wait till a cow gets cancer and dies and then eat that one? I don't think so. Somebody pointed out, well, only about 2% of the population is vegan, so let's let them not eat meat. Okay? But they are trying to cut back on the amount of food available. That's one way they intend to do it. So... Pestilence is a result of diseases they're manufacturing. Famine is a result of food production that they are cutting back. And they're doing part of that with weather, manipulating the weather. So this thing is well along its way, and uh, the war drums are beginning to beat stronger and stronger in the Middle East and in other places. <clears throat> So, what is his advice to us when this happens? And it is in process, progress, right now. Not something off in the future. It's happening. Day by day, it gets worse. 
He gives a challenge to the nations of this world in chapter 8, verse 9. Associate yourselves, or conspire together, or form an alliance, or whatever word you want to put here, of working together toward a purpose. O you people, and you shall be broken in pieces. And give ear, all you of far countries, not Israel, but far countries, gird yourselves and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves and you shall be broken in pieces. Repeats it. You know, get all geared up for war, come against Israel, and you will be broken in pieces. Now, God has a plan and a purpose, as revealed throughout the prophecies, of how this will come. He says, and take counsel together, and it shall come to nothing. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel means God with us. And he starts using the name Emmanuel back in chapter 7, verse 14. uh, That he is coming to dwell with us and take care of us. When these countries come against this nation and against the church. So he tells these nations, it's not going to work. God is with his people. For the Eternal spoke this to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying... Say you not a confederacy. Isn't that what the government's been telling us now for years? Don't talk about a conspiracy or a confederacy or whatever word you want to use. Don't talk about that. To whom all, to whom this people shall say a confederacy. So people are going to start talking about the conspiracy against us and how they're trying to destroy our nation to make us communist peasants where we're dependent upon the government for a check and then we are their slaves and do what they want. That's what communism is all about and socialism. Neither fear you their fear nor be afraid. So a lot of people now in our nation and more and more people day by day are coming to fear what is going on. You know, Trump was in there and people thought, he's going to do something. He's going to help. Turns out he didn't help much. And if he wanted to, there wasn't much he could do because the swamp rats were bigger and more of them than him. So even if he did have good intentions, which I kind of doubt, he's just one of the billionaire club, he had a different job. That's to set us up. He wanted to figure out who the patriots were, who the conservatives were, and give the New World Order a good handle on that. And now as soon as these new people have come in, they've begun to say, and we're saying it even before they got there, all of you who are conservative, all of you who are patriots, we're coming after you. Some of the main leaders of the government that is now in place have been and are still saying that. And they truly intend to do it. But he tells us, 
as the worshipers of Emmanuel, God with us, not to fear or be afraid. Now, that's exactly what he told us there in Matthew 6, 34. Seek me, seek righteousness, and don't worry. So here he's talking about a worldwide conspiracy of nations from afar, and he says, don't fear it or be afraid. Sanctify the eternal of hosts himself. And let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He's saying here, there are two powers. We have the power of Satan and the rulers of this world against God and his people. So there really are only two powers that we're dealing with. This is fairly simple, really. We're dealing with Satan and those he influences. And he does influence the leaders of the world. And we're dealing with Christ and the Father and those he influences. So he says, let's not get ourselves all mixed up here and worry about something that is true, it is real, it's coming, and is already upon us to a degree that is going to get worse and worse. We're in the end time. The beast has begun to, in, uh, to put itself forward in very real ways. So we're seeing the formation. We may not know yet who the two individuals, the beast and the false prophet, are yet. But we see the machinery being put in place, and not only put in place, but activated with jabs in the arm. And it's going to get even more intimate than that hand and forehead eventually. This is just the start. So he says, don't fear them, fear me. So we should not spend an undue amount of time worrying about this. Shouldn't spend any time worrying about it. Maybe we need to spend a certain amount of time being apprised of it and aware of it. Uh, as we see the leaves coming on the trees, he said. So be aware of it. Be watching it. See it coming. Avoid it. But fear me, not it. Now, that is not easy. Just as what he told the disciples there, don't take anxious thought. Don't worry. Don't be a worry war. Trust me. Have faith in me. That if you seek righteousness and seek me with your whole heart, I'll take care of you. Now, do we believe God? That's all faith is, is belief and trust in God. That he will take care of us if we do our part. So, anytime we get all afraid or worried about what's coming, we're doing the wrong thing. We're supposed to fear God and let Him be our dread because you and I know that Satan is eventually going to be defeated just like he says back here we just read. It'll be broken in pieces. Daniel says that this giant that is arising will have feet of iron and miry clay and they'll break apart and when they do, it won't stand. You don't stand up without feet. Have you ever noticed that? 
So there's nothing there to fear. If we trust God. Verse 14. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So his people, the few, the ones that God is going to come and dwell with, as per Zechariah 2, his remnant, he's going to take care of, but the rest of Israel is going to be destroyed. They have reason to fear. They have reason to have dread of God because it is his pronouncement of destruction that is going to come upon them. The Gentiles are only being used as a tool to do God's will, which is to destroy this nation and all Israelite nations. That's his goal and his purpose. We do not pray, God bless America, anymore. I won't sing, God bless America, anymore. Because God does not intend to bless America anymore. And it's against his will to ask him to. And Jeremiah says, don't even pray for them. They will not repent. You're wasting your time. God already knows they won't repent. And I think he passed his final judgment on that in Amos 8, in August of 2017. And since then, it has gotten worse and worse, and really picked up at the end of 19, and now it's on us. It has come. It has come, as Ezekiel 7 and 8 say. It's, it's here. It's not echoing in the mountains anymore. It's here and getting more violent every day that goes by. So the judgment is now coming, and he's going to send the Gentile nations in to be our final destruction. We're going to have famine and pestilence first. You're already seeing it. Little shortages in the grocery shelves. Prices going up crazy. What's our government saying? We've got 2% inflation. I talked to somebody at Lowe's the other day, and I said, uh, these two-by-fours three years ago were $1.78. They're over $8 now for one two-by-four. That's more than 2%. <laughs> That's four times the price. Insulation was three times the price. Drywall, about three times the price. One guy there that worked at the commercial desk that I know said prices were already going up dramatically in January. Because I'd heard back then that OSB board had gone up into the 20s of dollars a sheet. We used to get it for 6 and 8 when we started building out here. And the other day when I was in there, it's $45 a sheet for just pressed wood. $45. And he said, prices were already up in January, but I was bidding materials for houses in January. And he says, now, here in May, since January, it has doubled. Doubled. How are people going to pay for these? When do the banks start saying, this is crazy, I'm not going to loan for that? When is this thing going to all come apart? It's just craziness. 
you know, I've done a lot of building in my life. Houses, commercial buildings, various things. And I never considered not doing a project because of the cost of materials. I always said, I can do this, whatever it's going to cost me, I'll pay for the materials and I'll do it. Now I walk in there and I say, I was thinking of doing a project. I'm not going to do it. My mindset has changed. The cost of materials is so high, I say, forget it. Unless it's going to be a real necessity, then I might. But otherwise, I'm done. I'm checked out. Forget Lowe's and Home Depot. They won't let me in soon anyway. (laughs) So, there you have it. So, you see this thing coming down on our nation, and you see more and more restriction, more and more control, and how they're trying to control us, and God even says there that it will be total control where you can't buy or sell unless you have accepted them as your rulers under Satan. So, you are destined to starve to death if you don't take their mark or be killed, one of the two. Now, God says, don't worry about them. I shall be your fear and your dread. I will take care of you. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Now, this is a key concept that you and I must get through our thick heads. You don't have to be vaccinated. You don't have to accept their mark or their mask, for that matter. The mask is just the beginning. The vaccination, how did I... I was thinking of that the other day. The the mask is the introduction. The jab is where they start affecting your health and your life and your life or death. And it will get worse from there. Are we going to trust God to take care of us? Or are we going to incrementally take more and more of their control until we come to the point it's inescapable. We've gone in so far we can't back out. Are we going to let that happen to us? Now I hadn't meant to talk about this or today at all. I was going somewhere else with all this. But as our goals and our purposes, the first one is seek ye first the kingdom of God and then don't worry about other conditions. So we just haven't moved past this yet. I think this is probably right now the second most important focus and goal. First of all, to have the love of God that we seek Him with our whole heart. Secondarily, that we trust Him with our heart, mind, body, and soul. To take care of us so that we don't have to go the way the world is going to go in order to preserve their physical lives and keep a government check coming so that they can buy food. That's where they're going and very shortly now. 
that is going to happen. This whole house of cards financially is teetering on the very brink. And your dollars are going to be worthless. And they're going to give you some form of digital account that's renewed month by month. And your little chip in your hand or your forehead or whatever form this takes exactly is going to be required in order to spend or to get in a store. Because it'll have the vaccine data, it'll have all of your history, it'll have everything about you, and if you don't have that, you just don't get in. You're out. Forget it. So what's the answer? Go Satan's way and the way of the world government that's coming? Or God go God's way and be taken to a place where... It is a refuge and a place of safety for his people. And he will be a wall of fire around it and a covert from the heat and the rain, as he says in Isaiah. And he will take care of us. So we don't need to worry. So why do we? Well, we do because we don't have enough faith and trust in him. Now, there's where building your relationship with him becomes critical. When do we get to know him well enough to be in close enough communication with him that we can go to him and say, Father, we need help here. We need your hand. We need your son to come and dwell with us and take care of us because we can't take care of ourselves. And you promised us that you will. Now, we understand that we have to do our part and lead lives of righteousness and obedience to you. But if we do that, you've guaranteed that you will take care of us. So we can adopt the idea of what? Me worry? Why should I worry? I have the ruler of the entire universe, the sovereign above everything, who is also the sovereign over Satan the devil, and Christ is going to bind him a thousand years, and he won't affect anybody, any way, anywhere. He'll be gone. And God says, I'm going to break the nations in pieces. I will break them in pieces right here. I'll take care of it. You have nothing to worry about. And he tried to get that across in chapter 7, where he said, Ephraim is going to be destroyed in about 65 years. And then he says, ask me a sign. And Asa says, well, I shouldn't do that. I won't ask a sign. And God says, I'm going to give you one anyway. You need one. I'm going to give you one. Christ's nature, his character, is going to be produced through us. And he uses the example of childbirth to show how it would happen. You and I reproduce ourselves. So he says, it's in the same manner, I will dwell in your heart and in your minds, and I will reproduce myself through you. And then he uses that analogy in several prophecies, one where he says, she strains and strains to give birth, but only brings forth air. That it's a difficult process. It's not easy. Uh, it takes time and effort and some pain 
to produce that child. And sometimes in hard labors, women have wondered, is this ever going to happen? And finally they say, cut it out, <laughs> or whatever. Got to get past this somehow, some way. Well, they, she doesn't usually say, have to say, cut it out. The doctor says, I'll cut it out. I get more money for that. That's, that's where it comes down to, really. But he uses that analogy several times in the Bible about the church being like a woman in labor. And all of this pain and all this trouble and all this straining that we're going through will be forgotten because a man-child is born. Christ's character is reproduced in us, and therefore everything gets better. And he then is willing, instead of scattering us, to turn his face to us and to gather us together and bless us in ways that are beyond our comprehension. All he asks us to do, really, is trust him in faith that he will do it, and then because of that faith and trust, we do what we're supposed to do. And then he says, yeah, let's go for it. Now, he is pleading for us to do this. This whole book is a plea to human beings to follow God with all their heart. That's what this whole book is about. Anywhere you go in here, you run into that. You're either being obedient or you're not. You're either trusting him or you're not. You're giving in to the Satan and the world or you're not. You're giving in to your human nature or you're not. It's that same thing all the way through here, is God has to be central in our lives, and it is up to us, not just to him. He is the one who works salvation out in us. True. Without him, we're hopeless. But at the same time, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean <coughs> that he's not working our salvation out. He is the biggest part of it by far. But we are to respond and in fear and trembling stand in awe and let him be our fear and our dread as we're reading here in Isaiah 7 so that we stand back in absolute awe and respect that the God of the universe would care about you and me. Those few, really, that he's selected out of the many that were called. He's working with us to do his end-time work, to be the ones who trust him. And he says only about 10% of those who were called are going to be willing to do that. Now, you and I are looking at it straight in the eye today. We're looking at these scriptures and what he says. We have opportunity to upgrade our relationship with him so that it gets more and more intimate, so that we obey him better. The more of his spirit we have, the less of our human spirit and mind dominates. So we're daily seeking an upgrade in our capacity to do his will and to do his way. And the way that that is increased is through consideration of his word and meditation on it, 
and in prayer, talking to him, communicating with him, and asking that we be given more of his spirit. And that's what he says he's going to do there in Joel that we went over the last week or two. When the time comes, he says, I will pour out my spirit. And suddenly there will be visions and dreams and all kinds of things going on in a very dramatic fashion. Why? Because we are only a very, very few today. And he plans on bringing 10% of the church. He needs that many to finish his work. So he's going to use drama, signs, wonders, healings to get the attention of those who are still working at being faithful to him who don't have a clue today where to go or what to do. And he's going to make it abundantly clear. And 90% are going to say, eh, I got my shot. Or whatever they say. Or that God wouldn't be really doing that. I'm waiting for it to happen in the Middle East. The real Jerusalem. Got a clue for you. <laughs> it ain't happening there. It's happening here. Whether you and I are part of that is really up to God and us. But he's going to bring them to the real Zion and the real Jerusalem. That's what he's going to do. And we can be included if we trust him, serve him, and our fear and dread is him, not this thing that is coming upon us like a freight train now. Not to fear that. Fear him. Let's go on down a little bit more here. He will be a sanctuary, we read, but a stone and a rock of offense to Israel, to the physical nation. He separates here the ones who are serving him, and it's clear throughout the prophecies that only those who respond in obedience to him are the ones who will come to his sanctuary and be protected, that 10% remnant. That's clear in so many scriptures. But the rest of the nation is going down. Read Ezekiel 5, 6, and 7. After the 430 years, I believe firmly at this point, that he gave us in this nation from Roanoke until 2017 was 430 years. That's the same amount of years that he took from Israel in Mitzrayim. He gave them back and gave us freedom an amnesty, an opportunity in this land. We were not under the kings and the rulers and the autocrats and the demagogues and the dictators of the world. We came here with none of that in place. And we're given the opportunity to serve God and make this the Israel of God. And some came with at least a part of a knowledge of that. They had the Sabbath. They had the holy days. They had a, a certain amount of truth and understanding, I don't know how much, of the plan of God. But that didn't last long. <laughs> and it was gone. And it wasn't Christians truly serving God who even built our Constitution and Declaration of Independence and bills of right. In their own words, they were deists. And a deist is someone who believes there is 
a being up there somewhere, but that he doesn't care about or get involved with people on earth. That he is separated from them. So it is up to them to do their thing. Now, they, the deists, did give him a certain amount of credit, and they did design our Constitution and part of our government somewhat after biblical principles and according to the common law that had existed in England, which did recognize the Bible to quite a degree, actually, because they're Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on down. So there was still a certain amount of understanding. They still had the Bible, which the rest of the world didn't. So they got some things right. But even as they formed the government for this nation, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, all of them, none were Christian. They were deists, most of them. And they admitted so. Why did they lay out the capital of this nation in Masonic fashion? They were pagan, Luciferian, Masonists, is what they were. And they laid out our capital in satanic form and fashion. And then they used Greek and Roman architecture governments of Satan from the past used their things to create this nation. And to this day, you can look at a map, an overview of Washington, and that's what you see. It's got the Masonic stamp all over it. And Masonry is not, by any means, of God. They borrowed some of the symbols of God and turned them into Luciferian worship, like the all-seeing eye of God like the plumb line or the level or the square. Those were things of God that God used because his eye sees all. And he wants things square. He wants them right. He wants them upright, the plumb line. Those were all things that originated with God and then got perverted, misused, and abused and turned into symbols of Satanism and idolatry. Satan does not create things on his own. He is not a creator. He's a destroyer. So he counterfeits everything that God does. So the all-seeing eye on our dollar bill is a pagan adaptation of something that was right and good. I mean, even the site of Jerusalem has an all-seeing eye on it, geologically. God put it there, and he set Jerusalem on the lip of it. So it was of God. But what they're doing today is to use something that came from God to adapt it to paganism. That's really what they were doing there when Moses was on the mountain, was it not? God had given them gold and silver. They'd spoil the Egyptians. God gave them those things as a gift. And Satan and the people and Aaron adapted the things that God had given them, good things, into total and utter paganism in worshiping a piece of gold shaped like a four-footed animal. 
Now there's you a God. And they bowed down and worshipped it and got up and stripped off and danced. And turned the whole society into utter hedonism and paganism. So that's what's happened in this country. God gave us 430 years. I firmly believe that. I've seen no explanation anywhere else of the 430 days of Ezekiel, which God clearly says right in the context, each day represents a year. So he's talking about a 430-year period. And the only one I've found that could possibly apply in this end time is the 430 years we had up until 2017. And he didn't say immediate destruction would come. The way Ezekiel put it in the next two or three chapters was, it is near, it is come, it has come. It's not a long ways off. It's not going to be the echoing again of the hills. It's here. And it became increasingly clear that that judgment is now coming down upon us and is going to be abject and total destruction. So what about us? This conspiracy thing and these nations rising up will become a rock of offense and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem meaning is a symbol for the nation of Israel. It's also a symbol, as per Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, of the church. But he's always, throughout, the, even when he was talking about ancient Israel, he referred to Jerusalem, meaning Israel. That was the capital of it. So that's what he's using here. Many among them shall stumble and fall, and be broken, and be snared, and be taken. So then, that being the case, and that being the very near future of our country, what's a body to do? Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. That's what needs to be done. What's the testimony of God? What do you do? You bind it up so you can what? Carry it with you. In court, they give a lot of testimony. It's words. It's words. What do they do? They write it all down and they put it in a book that can be moved about. So God says to bind up his testimony. Put it all together. Tie it together. And there are a lot of scriptures in here that need to be tied together to understand what's going on. The Scripture comes, and understanding comes, here a little, there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept. You have to put all the Scriptures together to get the whole picture. It's just like a puzzle. You get one little piece of a puzzle... And you look at it, and you try to figure out, what does this represent? Maybe you see a little bit of a limb or something on that one piece, a few leaves maybe. 
oh, okay, there's a tree in this puzzle. And you start looking for other pieces that would go together with that and ultimately form a tree. And you do that, and as you do, piece by piece, it gets clearer and clearer until you put that final piece in there days or weeks later, and you got the whole picture. The Scripture is exactly the same. You take this Scripture, you put it together with this Scripture, you see that they're related, and the more of those you put together, the better the picture gets. Now, that's how we have to understand true doctrine, right? Somebody says, well, this is the truth. They read one scripture, it's part of the story. But you've got to go through the rest of the Bible and find every scripture related to that subject. And once you get all those scriptures put together, then you can see what God is trying to get across that nobody else would understand unless, led by His Spirit, they're able to put the pieces together in the correct order to get true doctrine. You can't base your religion on one verse or six verses, which is what most Protestant churches do. You get them off of their little, some of them 10 or 15 scriptures. I mean, some of them really have a lot. You get them off of that, and they're clueless. And they'll keep going back to it. Just acknowledge Jesus. It comes down to. No, they don't put it all together. That's what he tells us to do. To look at the whole picture. Bind up the testimony. Put it all together in a tight package. And then you understand. Isn't that what we've been doing now for years? Is going back and forth through this book, trying to find everything we can that affects our lives and becoming a part of the kingdom of God and the prophecies indicating what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, to whom it is going to happen, and why it's going to happen. And the why is almost the biggest thing. Disobedience. And lack of service to God is why all this stuff's coming on our nation. It's not too difficult to figure out. We're a godless nation, living the way of Satan the devil in almost every form. So for God's anger to come down on it, that shouldn't be any surprise. But you still got people out there saying, got to raise the flag for this nation. I see it on a pickup around here sometimes. You've got the American flag flying. What does that have to do with anything? Nothing. God's going to take that flag and jam it down their throat. He does not honor or respect America anymore. And He is not going to save it until it's been over or about 90% destroyed and killed. Then He'll set up His kingdom. And then God will bless Israel again. But not until then. And if you think that he's going to bless this nation, you've got an awful lot of understanding to come by. Because it isn't going to happen. It's over. It's going to get worse every day until it is completely destroyed.
and his people dead of famine and pestilence, of the sword, taken into captivity, and the sword after them. Those are Ezekiel's words right after the 430 days was talked about. But very soon after that, this would all come crashing down. So if you got plans for 50 years, well, I'd, I don't plan that long anymore. In fact, I don't even buy green bananas. Might not live for them to get right uh, my age. But uh, you can't plan too far down the future. You have to realize this thing is here. And our trust and faith has to be in Almighty God or we're done. So what are we to do? Bind up his words, his testimony. Testimony in Washington, testimony in Russia, China. That doesn't mean anything. God's words mean everything. And seal the law among my disciples. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. These are the commandments. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself as expressed in the ten. So those are the two things to do. Bind up God's words and live by the commandments and everything's going to be fine. you got nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. <clears throat> and I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob. Didn't he tell us in how many scriptures he would hide his face, spew us out and hide his face from us? And he is going to turn his face to the church and continue to turn it against the nation. He's already turned it against the church. He's going to turn it back to the church. Now he's turned it to the nation, and he's not going to turn it back until the nation is destroyed like the church was destroyed. When God gave us that understanding that all these prophecies were to the church first, into the nation's second, it opened an enormous amount of understanding. That we could look at the church and what has happened to it and know that it's coming on the nation and now it's coming fast. Fast being fulfilled. It's already happened to the church. We're waiting now for a very short amount of time until he turns and blesses us. It won't be long. So, I wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. If we bind up his testimony and seal his law, then we're looking for him. So, this relationship between us and him needs to be growing day by day. Every day we should be looking for God. How do I find God? Where is God? What is God doing today? How am I... Pleasing him. How am I helping him? How am I improving my friendship with him? My sonship with him? My betrothal to Christ? How am I doing that today? Look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. Now, he pretty much says in verse 18 what he's going to say in Zechariah later on. Zechariah 3 shows he's going to 
have signs and wonders which will be used to reveal his servant, the branch, who is Zerubbabel. He's going to do that. And here, Isaiah is saying the same thing. The children that God has given will be used for signs and wonders to draw the rest of the faithful. And he said he would come and dwell with us there in Zechariah 2 and be a wall of fire around us to protect us. And that we will be in Mount Zion, and that's where he will dwell. So you put this piece with Zechariah, and you have here a little, there a little, and the picture begins to emerge. You put about 40, 50 more scriptures with it, and the picture just gets clearer and clearer. But all we got to do is seek God and obey him, and all our troubles will disappear. He will take care of them. So what's today's lesson? Really, it's faith and trust. But you've got to have knowledge of how to trust, knowledge of how to have faith, knowledge of what is happening and what he will do in the face of it for us if we do trust. Because if you just say, oh, God will take care of me, and you don't do the things necessary that he says, and be where he wants you to be doing what he wants you doing, you're not going to be taken care of. So a certain amount of understanding and knowledge is necessary. That's why we bind up that testimony and pay attention to the commandments. Then we have the proper knowledge and know where to put our trust because this has happened to the church. This is now going to happen to the church, and it's good. But what happened bad to the church is now happening to the nation, and it won't turn good till the millennium. That's when it will. That's where we are. So I will look for him. And the children he's given me are for signs and wonders. And when they shall say to you, Seek to them that have familiar spirits and the wizards that peep and that mutter, Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? Are we going to look to Fauci? Nazi Fauci? Are we going to look to mindless Joe? You know, it doesn't hurt him to wear it. It hurts you and me to wear a mask, maybe, because it cuts off the oxygen to our brain. He can wear two masks and not be affected. No brain, no pain. But who are these wizards that peep and mutter? He's talking about the demonic world the satanic world, this conspiracy of nations against Israel and against God's church. That's the ones we're not to look to. Many of the leaders in Washington and in Hollywood and in sports have already outright said we're Luciferians. We worship Satan. We don't look to those people. We don't look to the leaders of our nation They can't help us. They're on Satan's side. It's up to us to be on and stay on God's side. This isn't rocket science. But here's the focus. This is what God's telling us in these times to do. Don't seek those people who are following Satan's way. Should not a people seek to their God? 
Find Him. Look for Him. Search for Him. Every day. To the law and the testimony, he says again, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And I know people right here on this property who learned these things and they knew when the Sabbath was and they knew the true calendar and a lot of things they knew that they have now dropped. They no longer keep the Sabbath. They observe half of it and the other half is on Sunday. They've dropped the Sabbath, which is what? A sign between God and His people. They've also gotten away from the heavenly calendar and followed some gobbledygook garbage from Washington that makes no sense whatsoever with the heavens. And now they got somebody here visiting, wants me to visit with him because he's come here through them and wants to know about Jerusalem because I had a vision. Now, why would I want to visit somebody who is pagan and came through here with people who have become pagans? They've gone back to the vomit of the world and the mud that the sow wallows in on several doctrines, and it's getting worse and worse. And they allow open fornication with their kids right here on this property. And it's abominable before God. We cannot walk together unless we're agreed. And when they're walking that way, you don't look to them. You look to God and this Word. Let's not be deceived. We have pearls that God gave us, and we better be very, very careful who we spread them before. The same thing John said in 1 John, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. And he said, if they don't come and bring this doctrine, neither allow them in your house, nor bid them Godspeed. Pretty powerful words. And yet some people who profess to be Christian listen to preachers on the radio who do not know God. But they think they get something sweet out of it. Well, white sugar is sweet too. But it's poison. And what they say might be sweet, but it's poison. And you shouldn't poison your mind with it. You're supposed to have your mind in this Word and in prayer to God, building a relationship with Him. And those guys don't have it. They are some of the wizards that peep and mutter because they believe the law is done away with, but they're teaching you love. You cannot separate the love of God from the commandments of God. It's impossible. This is the love of God that we keep the commandments. 1 John 5, 3. Can't separate them. Impossible. So, seek first the kingdom of God in righteousness, and don't worry about what Satan and the world is doing. Have your fear and dread. Be God and seek Him on a daily basis, and you don't have a thing to worry about, so quit worrying. Just be doing what God said. <laughs> 